Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the MM&M Podcast. I'm Steve Madden, I'm the General Manager and Editor-in-Chief of MM&M. And once again, we're coming to you live from the floor of Health 2021 in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. My guest on this installment is Dr. Steve Williams, Chief Medical Officer of Somalogic. Dr. Williams, welcome. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Good to meet you, Steve. Uh, Steve, Dr. Williams, which do you prefer? Steve is great. Two, just a couple of guys named Steve sitting around chatting. Yeah. So tell us about Somalogic and proteomics technology. Maybe maybe start by telling us what proteomics technology is. Sure. Well, the company was founded really on the thesis that as an information system, proteins are probably going to beat every other measurable um, element that the body can provide. And why is that? Because they're, um, they're downstream from the genetics and from environmental influences, and they change They've evolved to transmit information. So they're really acting like the body's internet. The problem has been, though, that if you want to interrogate the internet, you need bandwidth um, and you need search engines. And those things have not existed for 20 years. And that's why you hear a lot more about genetics, because genetic technology uh, arose before proteomic technology and got the bandwidth there, even though as an information system, it doesn't tell you about what's going on in the body today. So that's what uh, proteomics is, the study of protein networks working in multiple dimensions that tell you about future risks, current health states, and the impact of behaviors, today's behaviors, and things that you did in the past. Fascinating, um, and, and perhaps maybe a little bit scary, given, given that I just ate a cookie. <laughs> yeah. But uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what Somalogic does. Before we started, you mentioned that the company had just gone public. Um, what does Somalogic do? So we measure proteins. Today, it's 7,000 proteins that we measure all at once in a, in, a, in a small blood sample. What was special about the measurement technique is that, you, you, as you may have heard, or when you go to the doctor and you have a protein-based blood test, um, often people will use an antibody to pull a protein out of your blood and measure it one at a time. Um, what's special about Somalogic is we don't use antibodies, we actually use bits of DNA. And our founder uh, invented the process uh, 20 years ago of finding pieces of DNA that would recognize the shape and charge of one protein and no others. And it took a long time. But what that enables us to do is we've made 7,000 individual DNA-based reagents, each one of which binds to one protein and no others. And so now we can pull those out of solution. And instead of counting the proteins, we can count the DNA. Because we didn't have to invent DNA counting uh, technology. And, and so the key transformative step that that accomplishes is to turn a protein molecule counting problem, which is difficult, into a DNA counting problem, which is easy. So we count the DNA as a surrogate of proteins. So of those 7,000 proteins, are, are some of them um, you know, things that people would commonly be looking for? They are, but you'd be surprised that the, the people, the well-known favorite proteins, when we go after a new test, we actually have no favorites. We always measure all of them, and we use machine learning to tell us what the optimal combination of those proteins is to predict a future risk, a current health state, or a behavior. And what's interesting is that the old favorites, even though they're on the menu, they're available to be selected, they often don't get chosen. 
And the reason for that is that the literature as a representation of what people know and love is not actually a very good representation of biology. It's often a representation of, well, did I have an antibody that might measure this protein or not? So we really are, are agnostic. We don't rely on the literature or on our favorites. We just use machine learning to find those networks. Does it have a particular application, uh, rare diseases, uh, chronic diseases? Yeah, um, so we work a lot. We have two business units. One is with life sciences, so we work a lot with academics and pharma companies who are doing discovery and improving the efficiency of drug development. Um, and so they're doing all the different diseases you can imagine. What we've invested in, in terms of taking the technology through to helping health management, is in metabolic health. And the reason we did that is because it's a, mo it's a serious problem. It kills more people than anything else. Most people die of, of heart attacks and strokes and so on. Um, it, so it's serious, it's common, and interventions already exist. But there's a matching problem. Who should get what drug, or should they get a drug at all, or should they get the right dose, and was it working? Or there are behavioral interventions that if only you could engage people with their own risks you, and show them that what they were doing was in actually improving their risks, then maybe compliance would be better. So those are the reasons why we focused on metabolic health and cardiovascular diseases, the first one that we've, we've spent our own money on, on taking these tests all the way through. So walk me through it. How would it work uh, you know, if I'm a patient and I, I think or my physician thinks that I've got cardiovascular disease? How would they use your technologies to, to uh, improve their outcome? Yeah, well, they might start by actually not knowing whether you had it or not. Um, because one of the things we found is that the way the, the protein network for, for cardiovascular risk prediction works is it actually finds people who would not have been thought to be at extraordinarily high risk. And it upgrades their risks to be something, uh, something higher than one would expect. But we do tend to focus in on people who have one or other reason why there might be some underlying conditions there. People who've had an event in the past is an obvious one, but people who are over 65 or who might have kidney disease or who might have diabetes, they're all enriched for risks, but it's actually quite hard to measure them because existing risk scores usually depend on age and sex and medical history. They don't work so well in that group of people. So you know, if you're in one of those groups, we would take a blood test and the cardiovascular event prediction test uses 27 different proteins um, out of the, the 7,000 mm -hmm. and it, there's an equation that relates those proteins to an actual likelihood that you will die or have an event um, within the next four years and the average time to event that we see within that prediction period is just under two years and if you're in the bad group then the observed event rate in that group is about one in two. So if your result was to come back high, you'd have a one in two chance of having an event. The most likely time you'd have it would be somewhere less than two years. And the most likely event type is death. So with this information, you can, um, you can work with your physician to take preventative steps. Yeah, that's the beauty of it, because this is not your destiny. It's not a polygenic risk score. And that's the other thing we've baked into the program. Is it sensitive to change, good and bad changes, like bad changes like smoking and good changes like some drugs? And we, indeed, we've been able to show that even, even diet and exercise, some of the, the, the cardio, um, cardioprotective pharmacologies that already exist, these, a lot of these new drugs are, are actually poorly spread throughout the population. 
that if you take the diabetic cardioprotective drugs today, only about 15% of the eligible population are on them. The other 85% are eligible, but they're not taking them. Um, so we can help a physician and a patient decide together whether, um, whether they should upgrade their cardioprotection. And they tend to reduce event rates quite substantially by up to a third. Um, so if your risk was, was 50%, it might go down to 40 or 30. Uh, and that's quite substantial. And you'll be able to measure the change due to that intervention. How widely used is this technology? Because it sounds revolutionary. Yeah, we're just getting started really. As a research tool, it's really widely used and we've got uh, lots of uh, successful collaborations with academics and with pharma companies. But it's quite hard to break into healthcare, as you, as you know. Uh, we have some, uh, some concierge physicians who are using it uh, in their practices, along with, we have 20 tests, along with other tests that, that help manage cardiometabolic health. But within the healthcare itself, we're really starting out by, uh, as a first step, by working with five or six different health systems to show that if you give this information to the physician and the patient, does it actually change that allocation of therapy that I talked about a minute ago? That those people who are eligible for these upgraded drugs, if you give them a result, which is at the nasty end of the spectrum, do they actually change anything? Or do they stay with the, we don't want it? So that's the first set of studies we're doing, can you change physician action? What are some of the other conditions? You know, we talked about heart disease. Um, what, are, what are a few of the other conditions that this technology works well with? So the, there's the prediction of cardiovascular events, that composite endpoint I told you about a minute ago. There's also, we've got special tests for just for heart failure. And there's two different key kinds of heart failure, preserved ejection fraction and reduced ejection fraction. And we've got Two tests there that predict the likelihood of death within six months and 12 months if people have heart failure. We've got a test for um, the likelihood that your kidney function will get worse um, over the next four years. And then we've got a variety of tests that the concierge docs are using for, um, for preventative health. Cardiopulmonary fitness, glucose tolerance, visceral fat, percent body fat, lean muscle mass, resting energy rate and so on, liver fat. Um, and then um, for research use, we've got tests that mimic the output of a liver biopsy for, for NASH, for NASH clinical trials. And I don't know if that adds up to 20, but we've, <laughs> the 20 is where we've got. And then the research, the future research is going into likelihood of dementia is the next one that will emerge um, for, and that one will emerge first into the Japanese market where we have a partnership with a a joint venture with NEC and a company called Phonus Life, and they're going to predict the likelihood of dementia in Japan. And then starting next year, we have a big program in the discovery program for uh, the likelihood of developing cancer. Not do you have it today, but how susceptible are you to it over the next five or 10 years? And we think the proteomics is going to be especially good at that because it's about the host. It's about how good is your immune surveillance in terms of knocking off those aberrant cells that appear in all of us from time to time. This is absolutely fascinating. I, I, I suppose that there's an application for COVID as well because a lot of COVID long haulers have, uh, have issues, uh, cardiac issues. How are you applying it to, car, uh, to COVID patients? Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. Um, we've done quite a lot of work in COVID. First of all, in discovery, a lot of our um, uh, academic and pharma 
collaborators have published on using the 7,000 proteins to actually understand more about the, the pathways that are, that are perturbed. But we have applied some of the tests I just talked about during COVID as well. And the cardiovascular test is really fascinating because even though we developed it to be a four-year predictor, during acute COVID, we've seen it double in three days. We didn't expect it to be quite so responsive. And when you look at, at how, how good it was for predicting COVID outcomes during that acute phase, uh, it was highly prognostic. The median score for people who died within the next 28 days was 100%. That we predicted them to have 100% likelihood of an event. And we've seen that score go up during the acute infection and, and begin to come down again after, within a short period after the infection. And we're continuing to look in the weeks and months after that time to say, can we, can we look at the rate of recovery of the heart? And can we relate our predictions to cardiovascular imaging of the heart? That's an ongoing research project. So it's, this technology is highly predictive. Highly, yes. Yeah. I've, I've you know, spent, as I mentioned, we are on the floor of uh, Health 2021. And one end of the, the, the hall is entirely filled with technology. I mean, the health is about the convergence of, of healthcare and technology. But I'm really struck by the number of, you know, there are startups here, there are small companies, there are, you know, massive legacy carriers here. Are you, when you're walking around, are you seeing any technologies that you're particularly excited about or anything that's really struck you as truly revelatory? Not so the technologies, but I think that the theme that we're seeing is that one of the impacts of this pandemic has been the way it's affected our work life. We've become more remote. We've avoided meetings like this. It's also affected people's health life in the same way. And so a lot of these technologies are looking to do more healthcare more in a more distributed way and a more of a non-touch or low-touch or less-touch way. And, and so I think that in, 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 when I look at, at the, re the relevance of that to our own technology, I think that the laying on of hands of a physician or the need for a specialist to be face to face with a person, I think that the pandemic has helped help shift that perception that actually maybe we can do things remotely um, through digital technologies or through taking a blood test like ours remotely. Maybe we can shift that to be more distributed and remote and actually also less specialist, that some of the interpretation that had to be done by humans in the past could potentially be done by AI or machine learning. Is there anything else about proteomics or, or somologic that, uh, that you'd like to share? Questions that you thought I might ask during this podcast that, that I haven't? I think the, what, one of the things left to share is maybe the, the frustration that we have about the, the the technology that we're developing, the tests we're developing, is such a poor match for the way that tests are approved and reimbursed. The idea of having thousands of measurements and mini search engines and the fact that we could provide a coherent bundle of test results to you or your physician that would really enable a decision. Um, Today, the, the payment and approval mechanisms would say, no, 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 you can't do all that. You've got to split them all apart. You can't give seven test results together to enhance a specific decision. You've got to test each one separately, get each one paid for separately, when actually individually they might not be worth so much. It's the, it's the coherence and the combination. 
and the fact that in a year's time we might have an enhanced version of the same test, we'd like to upgrade it. Um, and, and so the, 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 those mechanisms don't seem to be a match for the way that the current technologies are evolving and, the, and, the, and they're going to slow down the pace of actually healthcare enhancement. Yeah, they, but, but hopefully they'll change. I mean, if you've got a technology that's, that's this highly predictive that could eventually save hundreds of thousands of dollars in costs, just head that off. It's going to make sense to, to have a, a, a saner approach to reimbursement. I hope so. As a, as a single information source, I, obviously I think protein networks were clearly, clearly biased. The, if you had to bet on one information source as providing the, the biggest spectrum of useful, actionable health information, it would be that. And I hope that uh, having such an irresistible product would help the acceptance and adoption, reimbursement and approval mechanisms evolve, maybe in the way that they did for imaging. Because imaging uh, is not exactly paid for in the same way as lab tests. We don't say every pixel on that screen has to be individually linked to a, a future value before we'll measure that pixel. We say, I'm going to measure all of those pixels. I don't know which one's going to be useful today, but actually I'm confident some of them are going to be useful. We don't treat lab results like that, so I'm hoping that maybe we can look at technologies like this as, as more akin to imaging than lab tests. Absolutely fascinating, and a technology that, uh, that we definitely need to keep our eye on. Um, Steve, thank you very much for being a guest with us here today. Thank you. been a pleasure. Uh, my guest has been Steve Williams, Chief Medical Officer of Somalogic, and you've been listening to the MM&M Podcast, coming to you live from Health 2021. Thanks very much, Steve, and thanks everyone for listening.